Hello, everybody, and welcome to my second podcast episode. Uh, In case you missed the first one, my name is Alyssa, and I am a senior music education major at Missouri State. And over the past few years of studying in college, I've found that I am really passionate about making the world a better place for my future students. And that has become uh, the focus of my podcast uh, series here. And uh, last week, um, I spoke about diversity in education and ways that we can really embrace the the diversity that has accumulated in our classrooms uh, throughout history, which is a really special thing because it has not always been there. And we've worked really hard to get to where we are today. And I think we can continue to work um, to better uh, the diversity in our classrooms and to make them an inclusionary space. And by doing this, uh, through this thought process in general, um, I decided to focus on microaggressions in education for my episode this week. And while I thought this term was rather new, um, according to a 2015 talk by Professor Daryl Wing Su of the Teachers College at Columbia University, um, this term uh, microaggression has been around for a while, and Professor Su has been studying this term for a good while as well. And specifically, he referenced a man by the name of Chester M. Pierce, um, who was a student at Harvard, who later became a psychiatrist, and he coined the term um, microaggression back in the 1970s to describe the behaviors that he was seeing, um, where people were acting um, incorrectly towards him in a uh, way that um, he was being discriminated against and just overall insulted in his uh, dignity was being tarnished as well. Um, And I thought this was an interesting place to start because I thought that really the term microaggression had appeared in, you know, the 21st century, that it was a newer term, but really it's been around for a while. Um, And it really has become more prevalent in our society, I think, we've become more uh, cognizant of it in the past, um, in the past 10 years or so, I think. I think I've heard the term a lot more recently. And that's why I really wanted to take the time today to explore the broad category of microaggressions, because I am sure I am positive, actually, that I am guilty of microaggressions. Um, And I think it's a great place to um, explore in order to build this better environment for my future students. And so as a result of this, we will be exploring the definition of microaggression and then breaking it down into its subcategories and then taking those subcategories and exploring them a little deeper within the framework of education. And then finally, I would like to wrap up with some ways that we as educators can strive to prevent microaggressions from entering our classrooms. 
And I hope you'll join me for this episode today. So as I stated before, I think it's really important for us to establish a definition for microaggressions before we start analyzing it within the framework of education. So for this portion of the podcast, I will be referencing a uh, document entitled A Guide to Responding to Microaggressions by Kevin L. Nadal. And this piece was published in 2014. And um, he actually references some uh, elements from Daryl Dwing Sue, uh, which is the professor who um, I referenced in my introduction, actually, who mentioned um, the way in which uh, Chester M. Pierce was one of the people, or was the individual who coined the term microaggressions in the 1970s. So, according to Daryl Dwing Sue in this article, um, there are three different types of microaggressions, um, and specifically according to Nadal, a microaggression is a, uh, brief and commonplace daily verbal behavior or, um, environmental actions, uh, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults towards members of oppressed or targeted groups, including, um, many different uh, uh, historically excluded groups. Um, so microaggressions can occur in uh, racial contexts and gender contexts, LGBT community, religious, or they could be intersectional, so involving um, any of these categories. And to further narrow down the thought of microaggressions, because that's a really big umbrella term, um, Daryl Dwing Sue actually provides three separate categories, as I stated earlier. And the first one um, are micro assaults, which are uh, behaviors, more or less. Um, and they occur when a person behaves in discriminatory, discriminatory ways without uh, intending to offend someone, or they may not think uh, that their actions are noticed or harmful um and i think that a good example of this and for my examples i'll be pulling from different uh movements throughout history um for the micro assaults portion i think that uh i would like to reference uh dr pierce's work again uh simply because um his work went unnoticed uh and it's uh really interesting to me uh, that it went unnoticed because he's a really intelligent individual. And I think that that would be considered a micro-assault because uh, while it's not outwardly uh, like um, harmful, it was in the end harmful towards uh, Dr. Pierce as well. And um, in addition to micro-assaults, uh, which are behaviors, we also have micro-insults, which occur when a person unintentionally communicates a discriminatory message. Um, and for this, I thought, especially in uh, 
in parallel with this article um, from Kevin L. Nadal. He actually mentions the same example, uh, which is a person might tell perhaps an Asian American or a uh, another person of a different ethnicity that they speak very good English. And this may not be intentionally discriminatory, but it is because this person may have been living in the United States for three or four generations. And um, it can really indicate that that person thinks, the person who said the statement thinks, that maybe people from different ethnicities do not speak English as well as they do. Um, And that might not be the intention of the comment, but it can come across that way, which makes it a micro insult. And in addition to micro insults, um, we also have another uh, form of microaggression called micro invalidations. And this category uh, of microaggressions occurs when an individual denies the realities of members of targeted groups. And for me, when I think about this example, I think of a present day movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, and some people's response to this movement um, is that all lives matter. And I think that really denies the fact that uh, racism is uh, still uh, in existence today in the United States, um, as people deny the reality of racism. And typically all lives matter comes from white individuals in response to the proposition that Black Lives Matters. And I don't think many of them, maybe not all of them, but several of them do not intend to be racist when they say all lives matter. But in that moment, it comes across as a micro-invalidation. And I think that that is something that we can definitely consider um, in our day-to-day language. Um, so overall, to wrap this segment up, um, we have three types of microaggressions, and they affect many different types of people, different groups. And next, we're going to look at some more specific examples in education. So now that we've expanded our more technical knowledge of microaggressions through the definition of microaggression in general and the breakdown of microassaults, microinsults, and microinvalidations, I thought we would take a look at specific examples of microaggression in the classroom, um, and specifically microaggression caused by teachers, perhaps. Um, and I think this is something I can always be examining and keeping myself in check as a teacher. And I hope that other teachers will do that as well. Um, But this list of potential microaggressions uh, that could happen in the classroom comes from uh, a document published by uh, Masai University. Um, And it actually includes um, some information from, uh, once again, uh, Dr. Uh, Wing Su, again, which I think is interesting. Uh, he is actually one of the most recognized researchers of microaggressions, and that's why uh, we really keep running into him in all of these different articles. Uh, but this article expands on the thought of microaggressions by giving specific examples 
And uh, the very first one on this list is um, failing to learn to pronounce or continuing to mispronounce the names of students after they've corrected you. And I think this could be um, either a uh, micro insult or a micro assault as the behavior may not be intentionally offensive, but clearly it is communicating uh, some sort of offense uh, as the teacher feels that it's not important to recognize that the student has a name that they need to learn how to pronounce, uh, that they have a name that may be different uh, than the names that they typically run into in their classrooms. Um, and I think that not taking the time to learn the student's name fully really shows a hint of ignorance uh, in general as uh, we make the student feel unimportant or unrecognized in our classrooms. Um, and I think that that's something that we could really combat potentially by perhaps writing down the phonetic spelling of the name or maybe even asking the student how they pronounce their name once or even twice. Um, and I think it's really important to get that down as well. Um, another microaggression on this list is uh, setting low expectations for students from particular groups, neighborhoods, or feeder patterns. Um, and again, I think this is actually a behavior, so it would fall into the category of microassault, uh, which is where you behave in discriminatory ways. Um, and I think that this can be a really big problem in our classroom, and it's something that we often talk about uh, in my education classes. And I've really run into it recently as I begin to do a practicum at a uh, school with lower test scores. Um, but I think it's really important that even if our students may not be the most high achieving students academically, that we have standards for them that are not too low. Um, they really won't achieve anything unless you push them. They need goals to work towards. And making those goals too low makes them feel uh, ignored, uh, forget, forgotten, um, and other emotions like that. So it's really important to set those standards for all your students, even if you may think that they are not able to achieve those goals. And I think that this particular example may be uh, referencing race. I think that it's unacceptable to discriminate our students in the classroom based on their skin color uh, or their knowledge or their background in general. So it's really important to keep a uniform expectation across our classroom, no matter what the student's background may be. They certainly can achieve whatever we push them towards within uh, a reasonable sense as well. And I think that there is at least one more example from this list that we can examine. Um, and I think that um, I would like to focus the last one on uh, making assumptions about students and their backgrounds. Uh, I think that goes hand in hand with the last example, um, but this may be more of a micro invalidation as we perhaps deny the reality of their um, 
their background as well. Um, but it's really important to just let students be themselves in your classroom and allow them to explore themselves, explore themselves through the knowledge that you are presenting. Uh, and it's really important to leave those uh, perhaps implicit biases or biases that we may not be aware of through these assumptions outside of our classrooms as they have no place in there. Um, all of our students uh, do not communicate every little thing about their lives with us, and they shouldn't, which is why I think it's important to make sure that we are not making assumptions about them. And in this uh, review of microaggressions in the classroom, uh, I think it's really important to think about ways that we can counter microaggression. And I've given a few examples of what I could think of to counter these microaggressions through um, that may be labeled as micro assaults, micro insults, or micro invalidations. But I think it would be really valuable to examine some professional opinions about how to uh, navigate uh, microaggressions as well and how to prevent them from happening. So in order to prevent microaggressions, I thought that we would look at a document from St. Louis University, um, which is a document entitled Avoiding Microaggressions in the Classroom. And it once again contains um, information from Daryl Doing Sue, uh, which is uh, extremely helpful. And it lists some ways in which teachers can avoid uh, microaggressions in their teaching. And it also uh, addresses how to address student uh, microaggressions that may be said in the classroom. And I thought I would go over these lists a little bit. And on the teacher list, it says to reflect over your own attitudes, stereotypes, and expectations. And I think that's a great place to start, um, becoming aware of what we're thinking inside. And I hope that you would also do the same. Um, I plan on doing this constantly as I teach. And I even do it now um, as it's structured in part of our uh, like observation classes, and that's very helpful. Um, but after we've reflected, it's really important to confront our own hesitancies according to this list. And I think that that is also helpful because it will give us a place to start when educating ourselves, um, which leads me to the next part of not expecting students to be experts on any experiences beyond their own and do not make them speak for the experience of an entire group of people. Um, so in other words, don't expect others to educate you or your students, um, of course, unless they offer to, um, but they are not experts on uh, their uh, historically excluded group, perhaps, that they may be a part of. And uh, when addressing, um, potentially, these historically excluded groups while teaching, it's really important to assume that these groups um, that you're referencing are sitting in your classroom. Um, and I think that's, that is a really great thought to have um, because our students may not always be presenting the stereotypical characteristics of an individual from whichever group that they're a part of. 
um, but they are still a member of that group. And I think denying them the uh, maybe benefit of the doubt um, is an inaccurate way to be teaching in our classrooms. It's important to realize that um, we cannot be rather exclusive in our classrooms. We must be open to all backgrounds and we must uh, not be discriminatory in any way towards those. Um, and I think that the end of this list contains one of the most important parts um, for teachers. It says that in those cases, when students do have the courage to contact you and point out that they were offended by a remark that you made or an action that you undertook, listen to them. So it's really important to be self-aware as well and be ready to correct any behaviors uh, that we may have accidentally presented through micro-assaults, micro-insults, or micro-invalidations. Uh, and I think that being open to student feedback in this manner is going to be a really valuable step to uh, taking action against microaggressions in the classroom because uh, we're not always aware of them if we're committing the microaggressions. So hearing it from another student would be extremely helpful. And I hope to encourage my students to uh, take the initiative in correcting me if I'm wrong about something that they know more about than I do. Um, and moving away from these teacher examples, which are all great, and I hope that um, these thoughts of reflection and uh, assumption and feedback are really important and can be internalized in our classrooms. Uh, but I think it's also important to think about microaggressions coming from our students. And so the first item on this list from SLU, once again, uh, says that we should be establishing standards of responsibility and behavior for working collectively with others. Um, and I think that a lot of schools already provide those standards, but I think really Im implementing them in our classrooms and uh, creating a standard of, of inclusivity and responsibility is important. And uh, we need to be ready uh, to correct uh, behaviors that may step out of the line in that way. And I, th the next step, or next item on this list rather, is to challenge the discriminatory attitudes and behavior rather than the person. And I think that's really important because uh, if we directly call out a student in any context, they probably will feel attacked and will shut down and not listen to you. So challenging an attitude is really important because it allows the individual to still listen while not feeling personally attacked, but perhaps learning a little bit more on what they believe and what others may believe in response to that. Uh, and I think that the next thing on the list here is also important as with any factor on this list will be but it is to teach students that impact is more important than intent uh, so the way we say our words uh, may come across in different ways different people obviously and I think that reminding our students especially our younger students that uh, our words can be hurtful to others even when we don't realize that they are 
uh, that can be a really valuable skill that students will use in all regards of their life for a, for a long time. Um, they will always come back to that skill. So it's really important that we establish that in our classrooms for our students as well. And I think it's really important to reflect on as a teacher as well. And I think it really fits into that category above for teacher uh, my career questions as well. Um, and I think that there are two more on this list. But the next one is uh, to stop unintentional micro-insults and ask students to rephrase or rethink comments, which is obviously valuable and very, uh, very specific. Uh, that doesn't really need any explanation. And the last on the list is to provide accurate information to challenge stereotypes and biases in the moment whenever possible. And uh, so rather uh, ref referencing the above text for teachers, uh, it's really important to educate ourselves once again so that we can provide accurate information to our students and challenge any incorrect beliefs that they may have. Uh, and I think that that's really valuable. So making sure to summarize that our students are not committing microaggressions in the classroom really leads to educating them well uh, and being ready to nip uh, in inappropriate behaviors in the bud uh, and really stopping those aggressions from even starting um, is really important. And always challenging them as well as yourself to recognize your biases that you may have and being ready to confront those and correct yourself. And I think creating an environment where students feel like they can correct themselves uh, is really important and valuable. And to really just create an environment where uh, everyone can learn uh, is really important. And as a teacher, I think it's also really important to educate yourself and your students on perhaps uh, lesser known historical concepts that may lead to microaggressions that we may not know about. And I think a great resource for doing this uh, comes from the Zinn Education Project, uh, which was founded by uh, a man who is really passionate about uh, sharing um, the true history uh, for uh, classroom teachers, and his name is actually Howard Zinn, and he was an activist and professor. And his history uh, is called, or his history uh, um, curriculum, rather, is called Teaching People's History. And for reference, I'm looking at the Zinn Education Project website, and specifically the page labeled about the Zinn Education Project. And here it says the, uh, the Zen Education Project uh, really supports uh, engaging students with a more accurate, complex, and engaging understanding of history than is found in traditional textbooks and curricula. So I think that exposing students to true history and instead of perhaps the whitewashed history that we typically get will really help students and ourselves as teachers be educated 
in ways to uh, prevent microaggressions from being said. So becoming more aware of the historical context of perhaps historically excluded groups will be really helpful. And it will really just lead us uh, in a direction that will help us prevent microaggressions. Um, and that's really all the information I'd like to share today, I think. So we've really covered a whole lot here. We've covered microaggressions as a whole, um, and then broke it down into the idea of microassaults, microinsults, and microinvalidations, uh, and then took those examples and really examined them in the framework of education. And we really discussed how it is important to be ready to learn and be ready to be corrected in order to prevent microaggressions from happening in our classrooms. I think that's the most valuable aspect of this whole conversation is that we need to be more self-aware uh, so that we are not initiating these microaggressions in our classrooms. So I think that that uh, is a great way to start thinking about ways in which we can help our future students. Thanks for listening this week. See you soon.